This is Dollars and Change, a podcast about the intersection of business and social impact. Brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. Welcome to Dollars and Change. I'm Katherine Klein. I'm delighted today to be speaking with my colleague, Professor Viet Hennish. Viet is the Deloitte and Touche Professor of Management at the Wharton School. He's also the director of the Wharton Political Risk Lab and the founder of the Wharton ESG Analytics Lab. And Veet is a real expert in ESG, environmental social governance standards for business. And I'm really thrilled to be talking to Veet today. Welcome. Thanks, Catherine. It's a pleasure to join you on the podcast. I look forward to the conversation. Thank you. So let's jump in here. And I've mentioned I want to keep our focus a lot today on ESG. And one of the things that's been striking to me is when I talk about ESG with friends, their knowledge of the topic tends to be all or nothing. Yep, I know what ESG is. I got it. And we can delve right in. Or, huh, what's ESG? Mm -hmm. So we want this conversation to reach everybody, all those folks and whoever is in between. So what is ESG? Well, ESG is the collection of environmental, social, and governance factors, which can materially affect a business. It's a, a rebundling of a set of risks and opportunities that have often been thought of as beyond business or beyond the confines of what we think of in management, uh, but increasingly are being seen as being part of it. On the environmental dimension, climate risk is, is the most prominent example. On the social dimension, we're thinking about workers, we're thinking about customers, we're thinking about communities. And in governance, we're not only thinking about the board management relationship, but also the relationship with political actors, the relationship with tax, a set of other relationships with external stakeholders. So one of the things I think you just said is these are the factors, environmental, social, and governance factors that affect business. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because I might have said these are the environmental, social, and governance factors that businesses affect. So which way is it? And does that matter? Well, it's certainly both, but the focus within the ESG conversation and measurement area is on how those factors will come back and impact shareholder value. But you're right. The reason they have an impact on shareholder value is because firms are imposing costs on stakeholders. The climate risk or the pollution of a company is hurting communities, is hurting citizens, and they're taking action in the regulatory environment or with their consumer buying patterns that's coming back and hitting shareholder value. So in each case, the firm is doing some harm or creating some benefit, and then that in turn is coming back and hitting the company. And the conversation around ESG is more about the latter, but it's because of the former. So Mm -hmm, we're both mm -hmm. right. Okay. And it's coming back and affecting the company. So there is in the ESG space today, again, I think there's this fundamental tension in the ESG space today, our stakeholders, investors saying, hey, I want to be investing in companies that are doing good things for the environment, for Mm -hmm. society, and, and that are governed well, or I want to be investing in companies that are doing good things, or at least not doing bad things on these dimensions, because that's going to lead to better financial performance. Or again, are we going to get to yes, yes, both? Well, so I think 
It is yes, both, unfortunately. I mean, you know, a typical academic answer. But I, I think it's important to distinguish two groups of investors within the ESG space. For a long time, there's been talk about sustainability, stewardship, responsibility, sustainable, responsible investing, or socially responsible investing. Those are more focused on the social consequences of firm behavior. So maybe mm-hmm. that's the, the first movement that you talked about in the last question. And there have been plenty of investors who on moral grounds or values-based grounds have said, I don't want to invest in companies that pollute. I don't want to invest in fossil fuel companies. I don't want to invest in weapons manufacturers. I don't want to invest in companies that are engaged in gambling. And those investors are still there, and they're part of the broader ESG movement. But what distinguishes ESG from those other incarnations is that we're really talking about the business case. That when you invest in a company that is involved in fossil fuels, that has not prepared itself for the climate transition, that's a company that's going to underperform in terms of its share price. So we're bundling together the people who care about climate with the people who care about the bottom line. And essentially, that makes for a majority. That makes for a winning coalition. And we can really affect change when we can make not just an ideological case, but also an economic case around these factors. Got it. Let's come back to the business case and continue to lay some foundations about ESG today. So ESG investing has gained considerable prominence. How big is ESG investing today? Well, the headline number that you'll see a lot is about $35 trillion of assets under management claims to take into account ESG factors. Now, what does that really mean? How much of that is really doing the hard work of understanding the business case around ESG? It's a much, much smaller number, but it's exciting that so many people care. Mm-hmm. So I like the $35 trillion number, but I'll acknowledge that it's a pretty drastic overstatement of the amount of money that's really doing a sophisticated ESG analysis. Got it. And 35 trillion represents about how about much? About 30 to 35% of total global assets under management. So with, with those basics in place, how in the world do we measure ESG now? Because you're going to, and I know you're going to talk about how to measure it better. Mm-hmm. But when we think about, you know, if I said, let's take whatever is typical, standard, how do we measure Microsoft's ESG? Apple's ESG, you know, um, my my, I'm looking at my Lenovo uh, laptop, right. you know, or Zoom <laughs> ESG. How do we measure these companies' ESG? I mean, this is right. Three very disparate factors for starters. We're you know trying to describe major companies on three really broad dimensions. Yikes! How do we do this? Well, I think your question highlights the difficulty. Who is we? The answer is going to depend a lot on who you ask, mm. including which data set you buy, which rating agency you look to. I think historically, a lot of the efforts on measuring ESG started with what the companies tell us. Mm-hmm. So let's look to what the companies put in their sustainability reports, or let's devise these really complicated questionnaires and send them to the companies and see what the companies send back to us. And then we'll take all these different variables, sometimes hundreds of variables, and compile them into an index or a score. And then we'll sell that to the investor. Let's think about that process. What do they tell us? They tell us the good news. What do they not tell us? 
the bad news. And so we've got all this data that's biased towards smiling faces and green spaces. Actually, one of our new faculty recruits, Leo Ponchalupe, has a paper that shows over time the number or the percentage of pixels in sustainability reports that are the color green is increasing <laughs> dramatically. So, uh, you know, we're getting a lot of fluff and happy faces in these sustainability reports, but we're getting less and less useful data. So that's the old way of measuring ESG. Now, over time, people have recognized that's a problem. So they're trying to come up with better ways of measuring it. Looking at what stakeholders say about a company. Do they say good things or do they say bad things? Looking at government regulatory filings. Are they being sued? Are they being investigated? Looking at satellites and looking at the emissions coming out of the smokestacks of companies. Doing environmental monitoring. Actually scraping the web and looking at the wage distribution of the workers. There's a whole host of new data providers that are trying to really get objective information on what companies are doing. But there's still the question you hinted at. How much weight do you put on one versus another? And how sophisticated is that? And then the further question is, when will those harms or benefits mm -hmm. be realized by shareholders, not stakeholders? All of that, everyone has a different answer to. And so when you look at Microsoft, you might find one company put it in the 80th percentile, the next company put it in the 20th percentile. And that's a real problem that's holding us back from progress in making the business case for ESG factors. So, you know, as I've read, and you've hinted at some of this, as I've read some of your work on ESG, what comes through to me is you're saying there's a large gap between ESG practices today, whether that's how ESG is measured or how it's used in investment and the potential you're seeing for ESG. Let's talk more about that. And let's start with some of the metrics and the research. So on the metrics point, you've already described that, and we've, we've already described, maybe it's worth underscoring, measuring ESG is really hard. From a simple measurement standpoint, it's very multidimensional space. Mm -hmm. That means it's going you can have a lot of noise if you try to aggregate this into a single score or even a few scores. The underlying data to base these ratings on is um, often unavailable or going to differ wildly for different firms. So there's big challenges there. Nonetheless, there have been reports that ESG investing is financially beneficial, that investing in highly rated ESG companies or highly rated ESG funds is financially beneficial. Talk with us about that research and what, you know, meta-analyses, what we should and shouldn't take away from existing research. Well, there's a, a large volume of academic research which purports to find a positive correlation between some measure of ESG or sustainability performance and stock price. There are a lot of problems with that research. As, as much as uh, you know, if we could find that correlation and all the investors could find it, I think we'd solve a lot of problems like climate change and racial justice a lot faster than we're able to. One of the problems, and I, I think a really major one that draws that we should be talking about, is most of the studies use a data set developed by a company called KLD that's now provided for free from MSCI. And it was one of the first efforts to measure a company's good or bad. But it wasn't designed to measure whether it was a business case. Hmm. It was just a list of goods and bads. And then the first academic paper that looked at this data set said, well, let's subtract the bads from the goods and come up with a net score of companies mm -hmm. without any attention to whether there was a business case 
on those goods or bads or how to weight the goods and bads. It was just goods minus bads. That data set is very infrequently used in the investor community, but it's used in over 80% of the academic studies that purport to look at the financial returns to sustainability. Academics should just stop using it. It's not helpful. And reviewers should stop demanding that academics use it. That's Hmm. part of the problem. That's so interesting because I've read studies with KLD and they look pretty good to me. Well, if you care about goods and bads, you know, it it captures goods and bads. So I think there's signal in it. It's a very carefully designed data set. And and the founders of it deserve enormous amount of credit for being Mm -hmm. the first out there. But it was designed to speak to values-based investors who Mm -hmm. wanted to know about goods and bads and wanted to assess a company. Do they do X? Do they do gambling? Do they do landmines? Do they do fossil fuels? Like, it does what it says it does. Mm -hmm. But that's not what ESG investing is about. And that's not what we should be looking for if we're looking for the business case. So I, I, I want to couch my criticism. Yeah. The data is actually quite good at what it was meant to do. Mm-hmm. That's not what we should be measuring today. So existing research, academic research, you're saying uses often uses the KLD database and correlates these metrics or regression, does more sophisticated versions sure. of correlation and correlates these metrics with financial performance and sees some typically positive relationship. Right. But you say, eh, that's not telling us what we would really want to know. We shouldn't put a whole lot to be, to, to, to pun a moment here. We shouldn't put a lot of stock into these studies. Do we have this, do I have this right? Is that what you It's going? promising, but if you were a skeptic, what would you say? Well, one thing you would say is that there are a lot of factors that aren't controlled for in these analyses. And one of the issues is good ESG management is mm-hmm. often correlated with good management. Yep. And so is there any added value in looking at this ESG measure or are these studies what are called underspecified? You know, mm-hmm. Are they leaving out other yep. things? Yep. And so, oh, they're finding a correlation, but you could find it by looking at other factors uh, that are already used in the investment models. And if you go and you look at the returns of funds that are trying to pick good and bad ESG stocks you don't see that positive correlation. So while the academic studies show it, I guess the proof is in the pudding. When you go mm-hmm. out there and try to build an investment thesis, the vast majority of ESG-oriented funds don't deliver higher financial returns when they tilt towards better ESG performance. And the ones that do don't seem to be able to sustain it over time. So mm-hmm. they might do it for one year or two years or even three or four years but then they have a few years of underperformance. So it seems very hard, like it is generally, to pick stocks that outperform the market, even when we take into account ESG factors. And should we take away from that, that no, actually taking into account ESG factors as however well you can measure them will actually hurt your financial performance, will hurt my portfolio? No, I, I don't think you, I, I, I hope I assumed don't take you were not saying that, but I thought we should double check. Yeah, let's clarify. Yeah. Well, it's important because there are some people who would give up financial returns and I commend them for, mm-hmm. for addressing climate, addressing racial justice, but many investors won't. I think the challenge is we don't have good enough data. And I think there really is an opportunity in the ESG space, like there was when we started investing in emerging markets, to have a sustained period that outperforms the market. Because we're starting to understand these relationships. We're starting to see these opportunities. The same way we started to see the opportunities of emerging markets in in the 80s and 90s. And it's possible that as we start exploring those opportunities and those risks, for quite a few years 
the people who are first to understanding these relationships, to mapping environmental, social, and governance factors, to revenues, costs, and efficiencies, figuring out which firms are slightly better in their industry than others or slightly better in their country than others, they, I think there's reason to expect them to outperform. And there are some firms doing the hard work of trying to do that analysis. And I'd love to see more funds flowing into those firms because I really think there's potential there. But have they proven it yet? Do they meet the standard of the skeptic? Honestly, not yet. So let's talk about what better research would be that you know is more appropriate for exploring the business case and what you believe that research has shown or will show as the field advances. I think it takes us back to, to strong fundamental analysis that people who really know an industry and really know a firm can start augmenting their models with information about, are they prepared for the climate transition? Are they addressing concerns around racial justice or immigrant justice? Are they building strong relationships with the community or are they generating hostility with the community? Um, Do customers really feel connected to the firm or do customers feel very transactional around the firm? To the extent that they can build that type of insight into their models, they can foresee risks and opportunities that are coming down the pipe and they can adjust their portfolios, they can adjust their weights appropriately. And I think they have a potential to earn higher returns. But that takes deep fundamental analysis. It's costly. It's time consuming. It's going to lead to higher fees. And so they have to not only outperform the market, they have to outperform the market enough to compensate them for the fees involved. And and that's a higher hurdle uh, that they're still struggling to meet. And from a research perspective, you clearly believe this research is important you know, and and will is likely to show these kinds of long-term financial performance. Mm-hmm. To nerd out for a moment here, as with fellow academics, I think in part what you're describing in the language I would use is you're saying we need to be pretty thoughtful about the mediating processes. What is it about a, a way a corporation is engaging on climate issues or racial justice issues that is going to affect its financial performance? Like how, what is that link? What is the mediating process? I think that's what you're saying we need to pay attention to. Right, and, and it's not, it doesn't have to be as complicated. I mean, I think there's some, there's some really powerful examples that convey the logic. Can you do it at scale? Can you do it across a thousand firms? That's harder, but let, let's take a really simple case. Great. And it's one that's gotten a lot of press over the last year and a half. Climate risk and the energy transition. There are oil and gas companies that are looking ahead to a period where we're moving away from fossil fuels, and they're investing in a different portfolio of renewables. They're investing in new technologies, in carbon capture, in biofuels. There are other oil and gas firms that are making bets that oil and gas is going to stay the dominant energy source for the next 25, 30, 50 years that we're going to have a three, four, maybe five degree global warming scenario. Those assumptions drive investments today. And the firms that are adapting are being better prepared for the climate transition and will earn higher returns on their invested capital. The firms that are investing in fossil fuels, I would suggest are going to have a lot of stranded assets. They're going to be writing off a lot of the investments they make today because people won't want that oil and gas at the price it can generate in 10 or 20 years. ExxonMobil, Chevron, some other firms have been the laggards and people have called them out. And people have done the financial analysis to show that you can't justify the spend they're making on certain oil and gas reserves 
if we assume we're going to get to a two-degree scenario or even a three-degree scenario, it just won't pay back. And so that type of financial analysis, it's not rocket science. You can work through the numbers, you can show, and, and they have underperformed for some time period because of these decisions. So calling that out and highlighting it highlights that there's a difference between the laggards in that industry mm-hmm, and the leaders, mm-hmm. and people should be investing accordingly. That's a great description of the, you know, and, and as you said, quite intuitive, a great description of why paying attention to climate may pay off financially for these firms in the long term. I'm curious either about how you would think about the likely business case, either around diversity, equity, and inclusion, or around living wages, decent jobs, or both. I mean, they often go hand in hand. Could you talk about that? What you what you think those links are? Absolutely. Yeah, I think living wage is a little more straightforward. I, I'm happy to speculate on, on diversity. I think there's been some good research, but it's harder to point to the data set you'd want. Mm-hmm. Living wage, it's turnover. Uh, when when people aren't meeting a living wage, they're going to leave a job for the next best alternative as fast as it comes. They're going to view that job very transactionally. You're not helping me out. I'm not able to feed my family. The second I can get another job that allows me to do that, I don't care about anything else. I just I need to meet that minimum standard to provide the support for my family. And I'm tired of cobbling together two, three, four jobs, federal assistance. So I'm out as soon as I can get to that level. That turnover is a cost to the firm because they have to find new workers. So they have to search for them. They have to intake them. They have to train them. They're going to be lower productivity initially. And then they're going to do that again six or nine months later. And so turnover for some retail providers is a massive cost. And with a higher living wage, you reduce turnover, you increase employee loyalty, you increase productivity, and it can pay to do that. That doesn't mean raising everyone's wage in every circumstance is going to pay for itself, but there are cases where it will. It's always helps in the short term to cut wages, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily help in the long term. And so turnover is a clear mechanism. And to the extent that we can measure turnover, we can form that link. With diversity, equity, inclusion, I mean, I think the research really suggests there's going to be more creative problem solving, more inclusion of both employees who feel that they're part of the company because they're recognized and their identity is valued, and probably more ability to reach out to a diverse set of customers, a diverse set of stakeholders, Mm -hmm. more support from diverse communities, better decision-making in the company, being ahead of the curve as we start addressing some of the longstanding racial biases in our country. But it's a little harder to say, okay, what would I measure? What data point would I want? I think turnover for living wage is a, is a much simpler measurement problem. Mm-hmm. I think the business case is there in both. It's just on the diversity side, it's a little harder to say, what data point do I want? Right. The mechanisms are there. It's about better decision-making, more inclusivity, people feeling a greater sense of belonging or attachment to the company because the company recognizes them and who right. they stand for. And as you said, ultimately, presumably a greater ability, at least in many industries, to reach you know, more diverse customers. Absolutely. I'd like to turn to some of the practical implications of what you're saying. And I want to focus first on investors. And I mentioned my my nephew, Lucas. My nephew, Lucas, is a a professor of Chinese literature, incredibly smart, sophisticated, and not so much about investing, but the, the man's brilliant. So hearing this conversation, uh, Lucas, you better listen to the podcast. He might say, this sounds great. I want to be investing in ESG. You know, and my, I want to make sure that my investments are in, in ESG funds. And, you know, hey, Vete, how do I do this well? 
you've mentioned that it can be kind of challenging. How do I do this well? Where can I put my money? How would I know? What's the advice? What's the, what's the yeah. challenge here? It's a, it's a great question. It is a challenge because of the data problems, right? And so just because someone has an ESG label on their fund or someone says they're taking these things into account doesn't mean they really are. And it doesn't mean you should expect either impact financially or frankly on climate or racial justice. There's a lot of what's called greenwashing out there. A lot of funds claiming that they're addressing ESG issues, but really they're just dropping one or two fossil fuel companies or one or two arms makers out of their portfolio. And they're saying, oh, look, it's an ESG fund. So I think one way to do it, if you want to take the time, is to really look at the fund, look at what they're investing in, look at what's called the tracking error. How much does it differ from the benchmark index? And then really try to understand what's driving that. How are they choosing firms? But that does require a lot of due diligence. That does require you to be a pretty sophisticated investor to make sense of the way the asset managers are choosing companies. Another way to go is to say, you know what? Maybe the data is not there yet. Maybe I'm not ready to make this bet. But at least I'd like to invest in someone who's engaging with companies on ESG issues and who's really voting in shareholder resolutions and proxy votes. So I don't want to shift my portfolio. I just want the S&P 500 or I just want some big benchmark index, but I want to be with a fund that engages. There are funds out there like that, that have very low fees, that match the market. You're guaranteed the returns of the S&P 500, but they'll vote on ESG issues, which will propel all the firms to improve their ESG performance and hopefully their financial performance. The ticker is vote. Sponsors a company called Engine Number One, and I, I should disclose I'm an advisor to them. Got it. I have to say, it's, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, I better call my financial advisor. This is a good strategy. We recognize that you're an advisor to them, but it's it's quite interesting. And I guess maybe one thing to talk about here is the power of the vote, the power of more activist strategies. So say a little bit more about, you know, what, what that potential is, again, for people who, who may not be as sophisticated about what this means in practice. Yeah, I think this is a really important conversation that we need to have more of. There's so much anger right now around fossil fuels or other issues. And people are saying, let's divest. Let's let's get our pension funds, our endowments to divest. And that sounds like I'm doing something. I'm divesting from fossil fuels. Imagine we were looking at the 22 or 2020 election. We said, I'm, I'm so angry about politics. I'm not going to vote. I'm just going to stay home. I mean, a lot of people did that. But did that make things better? Did right. disengaging make things better. If we call it disengagement instead of divestment, mm. uh, it paints a very different picture of it. Yeah. By divesting, you're giving up the power of the vote. You're giving up any voice over the future of the company. And so we should be much more active in our ownership. If we care about ESG issues, we should own these companies and we should encourage the management to change their practices. That's an active owner does. It doesn't just say, I just want the returns. I don't care. It looks to see what these companies are doing and you vote. And the research shows it makes a difference. If you look at what CalPERS has done, if you look at what the New York Pension Fund has done, there are a series of academic studies that have gotten access to very active ownership-oriented funds and looked at the engagements they pursued and whether they affected climate, whether they affected the company's work practices, and whether they affected financial value. And it works. Study after study finds that engagement works, divestment doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Problem is engagement is expensive and people are running away from high fee funds. But if you really care about ESG issues, you should be focused on those 
asset managers and assets that are engaging and that are voting on these issues and giving your money to them. That's the best direction for change. Divestment doesn't work. Got it. Practical advice for investment analysts who are fund managers, analysts listening to you and saying, you know, yeah, we we have this ESG product. I'm not that proud of it. It's not that deep. We've averaged six different rating systems, all of which are mediocre. And and, as you would say, at the end of the day, they've pulled, I don't know, 10 companies out of the 50 they invest in or five out of the 50 day investment. For those folks who are saying we need to do better within our firms, what should they be doing? As you do your analysis, as you look at the companies in your portfolio, whatever process you use, whether it's value-based, whether it's event-driven, whatever strategy your company is using, think about how environmental, social, and governance factors affect the performance indicators, affects the variables you're looking at. There's likely a connection. That's the idea. ESG factors are material. They affect the business case. How does that work for your strategy? You need to do that yourself. Don't just expect the ESG analyst to pull some numbers out of a shelf Mm -hmm. and put them alongside you and make a decision. There are too many companies who say, these are the preferred stocks, here's the expected returns, and then here's a set of emojis or a set of green light, yellow light, red light ESG factors. Now put them together. How do you do that? How do you put spreadsheets together with emojis? doesn't work. You need to try to find a way to bring them together, and it's got to be the investment analyst. So I'd encourage them all to think about that themselves. And Mm -hmm. if they want help, look for continuing education courses that retrain existing investment analysts on what's called ESG integration. We just launched one here at Wharton through the Coursera platform. There are other programs at Columbia, at NYU, the UNPRI has them. So there's a set of online learning opportunities to figure out how to connect the dots. And those tools will be incredibly valuable. And I suggest they pay during your career as well as an investment analyst. Got it. So so beyond the super, the quick and dirty superficial analysis to a much more, a deeper and more thoughtful one. Yeah, don't look for a black box or a magic toolkit that's going to say, this is the number that solves your problem. It's going to be hard work, unfortunately, as the search for alpha usually is. Right. So we we need to wrap up, but I I think we'd be remiss without noting that at mid-March, as we are recording this interview, you know, the news is dominated by the Ukraine war. And, and there's a business link as we see businesses being called on to, to pull out of, of Russia. And I'd love your thoughts on this. Is this an ESG issue? How should we be thinking about what we're seeing? How do you think about what we're seeing? Yeah, I've been asked this question a lot in the last week, uh, Catherine, or, or two weeks. What's happening in the Ukraine is devastating. I don't think it's an ESG issue. I think Russia has fundamentally withdrawn from the post-war order. I don't think we've seen an event like this in 75 years. This isn't a case where you balance the pluses and the minuses, the revenues and the costs and the efficiencies. This is a country that's launched a ground war in Europe that's led to 5% of the country within two weeks becoming refugees. Hospitals are being bombed. Daycare centers are being bombed. Indiscriminate attacks on civilians without justification. Companies can't afford to be associated with this regime. There are negative revenue consequences. There are costs to the employees in Russia, many of whom don't support the war. But no global company can afford to stay in Russia and be associated with the atrocities that are going on in the Ukraine. Whether it's a practical issue or a morally unconscionable ability to stay, both of those drive exit. The only question is, are you going to be one of the first firms out? probably already missed that boat by the time of this podcast, if you're still asking, 
Will you be one of the firms in the middle or towards the end? Or will you be the last firm in your industry that exits that country? I would argue you don't want to be that last firm. So if you haven't left yet, you better start thinking about how you're going to evacuate your expats and what you're going to do about your Russian workforce, many of whom don't support this war. But it's time to go. Thank you. Fantastic to talk with you. This has been just a really informative podcast. And um, thank you. Thank you. Wonderful to have you with us. Thanks, Catherine. It's a pleasure, uh, as always, uh, have these conversations with you and engaging with you on, on these important discussions. Dollars and Change is brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. To learn more, visit us at socialimpact.wharton.upenn.edu.